0: There is one book in the Bible that has always been a favourite book with atheists. It's a book that seems to be written like a dirge. It's full of the minor key, pessimism, despair, cynicism, even the desire for suicide. I refer to the book of Ecclesiastes. That name comes from the Latin word for the preacher. For the book is a sermon, a sermon about the insufficiency of all earthly pursuits and objects as the chief end of life, the inadequacy of everything we can see and feel and touch to confer solid happiness. It's a sermon on that topic, my friends, and therefore it concerns us all for which one of us is not seeking for happiness and which one of us has made no mistakes In our search. So this sermon of Ecclesiastes is the record of one man's search for happiness. A search for the supreme good. And of all men Solomon seemed the best equipped for that search. He was young, strong, rich, wealthy, powerful. We're told in the very first chapter of his experiments. But first he gives us a text. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or if I could give it a modern paraphrase, soap bubble of soap bubbles, says the preacher. Soap bubble of soap bubbles, all is soap bubbles. You may think that I'm joking, but not so. The Hebrew word vanity means a bubble. What is he saying? He's saying that the things of this world, sought apart from their author, prove soap bubbles. Discouraging, disappointing. There are certain key phrases in the book that guide us in our study. We've already noticed the word vanity. It occurs 35 times. Another term that recurs again and again is under the sun, 28 times. And the phrase upon the earth occurs seven times. So the book of Ecclesiastes is the record of a search under the sun of this world, forgetting what's above the sun, forgetting God, And how many of us have made just that mistake? Well, let's briefly read part of the biography of Solomon, a biography that shows his cynicism at the time when he'd gotten away from his maker. We'll notice that all his attempts at happiness end in collapses of bitterest disappointment. We have in succession the man of science, the man of pleasure, becoming a fatalist, a materialist, an epicurean stoic, but finally a humble and penitent believer. Each picture shows us the likeness of a wise, worldly wise, disappointed worldling, and then some added lights thrown in from a divine source. It's a fantastic narrative of hopes and blank failures. I'm reading from the first chapter in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Round and round goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea but the sea is not full. Is there anything of which it can be said? See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. So having given a general view of earth and its tendency to monotony and sameness then he tells us of his personal search for happiness I the preacher have been king over Israel and Jerusalem and I applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven it's an unhappy business that God has given to the sons of men to be busy with I've seen everything that's done under the sun and behold all is vanity all is a striving after wind what's crooked cannot be made straight. What's lacking cannot be numbered. I said to myself, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. My mind has had experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my mind to no wisdom, to no madness and folly. But I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now Solomon tells us of how he tried pleasure. I said to myself, come now, I'll make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Solomon proceeds to talk about his ventures into architecture and engineering and uh, irrigation schemes, orchards, agriculture. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks. I gathered silver and gold and the treasure of kings and providences. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. But now note his conclusion. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I'd spent in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And we read in the 17th verse, I hated life. In the 18th verse, I hated all my toil which I toiled under the sun. And so here's a man that had every opportunity for joy, for pleasure, for success and for happiness. But his search ends in cynicism and despair and disappointment and the desire to die. Why so, my friends? Why so? Solomon had made the mistake of regarding this world as complete in itself, whereas in reality it is only a hemisphere, just as man on his own is but a half hinge. We were made for God, my friends, and this world is incomplete in itself. It tells us in the third chapter that God has set eternity In man's mind, I'm reading verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's mind. Man was made for eternity. One might as well feed a New Testament to a horse and expect it to satisfy the horse as to feed the world to a man's heart and expect it to satisfy the man. My friends, you can toss a hundred thousand earths into the sun and there's room for thousands more. And the human heart is like the sun. Worlds alone cannot satisfy it. We were made for God, for God, my friends. We bear his image. We'll find no rest till we rest in him. So the book of Ecclesiastes is warning us about the pitfalls into which we all have fallen and in which we are still in danger of falling. It is reminding us that pleasure from earthly sources is fitful and unsatisfying. Even the heathen know this. The pagan philosophers of the 6th century BC pointed out that earthly pleasure has three characteristics. One, all intense pleasures are short-lived. Secondly, by repetition they lose their relish. Thirdly, they rob other more sober pleasures of their joy. And that's true, isn't it? Whether it is the pleasure of sex or the pleasure of eating or drinking or whatever it might be. They're all characterised by those three things. The intense pleasures are very brief. By repetition, we find they give diminishing returns for increasing expenditure. And by and by, they rob the more sober pleasures of life. Why is man such a fool? He was born a fool, my friends. Every one of us was. We were born in sin. We are ignorant of what is for our best good until we give our ear to God, our eyes to his word, our heart to his throne. Scripture tells us that the way of man that walketh is not in himself. It's only to be found in God. The scriptures warn us against idolatry. Three commandments out of the ten warn against idolatry. But we are born idolaters. It is bitter experience to find that possession brings indifference. Whatever it is you long for, my friend, if it belongs to this world only, possession brings indifference, whether it's a he or a her or an it, whether it's a degree or a bank account or a car or a home or a marriage. Apart from Christ, possession brings indifference. Let's take some of the specific vanities spoken of in this book. In chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, we read about the vanity of human wisdom. Then I said to myself, what befalls the fool will befall me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I said to myself that this also is vanity. For of the wise man as of the fool there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise man dies, just like the fool. So here he says human wisdom's not much good. For the wise and the foolish alike have one end, and that's death. Then in the same chapter, verses 19 to 21, we read of the vanity of human labour. And the reason he gives is that the worker is no better than the shirker in the end. In the 26th verse, he speaks of the vanity of human purpose. And he tells us it's along the lines that while man may propose, it's God who ultimately disposes. In chapter 4 and verse 4, he speaks of the vanity of human rivalry. And points out that much success brings envy rather than joy. In chapter 4 and verse 7 he speaks about the vanity of human avarice. Because he says when we get much it just feeds our desire for more. And then in chapter 4 and verse 16 he speaks of the vanity of human fame. He points out that fame is brief and uncertain and soon forgotten. In chapter 5 and verse 10 he dwells on the vanity of human insatiety. The great desire for more. And he informs us that money does not satisfy. Whatever we increase. will ultimately go to feed others. In chapter 6 and verse 9. He has the vanity of human coveting. And he points out that often our gains cannot be enjoyed. Sickness or death. Chapter 7 and verse 6. The vanity of human frivolity. All our laughter. Often only camouflages a sad heart and endeavour to forget the inevitable sad end. And in chapter 8, verses 10 and 14, he speaks about the vanity of all human gifts and human awards. He points out that bad are often honoured in this life and that good and bad get wrong deserts. I'm reminded of Byron, the poet, who a little while before his death, and he died at about 33, he wrote this and the words fit Solomon at this time. My days are in the yellow leaf. The flowers and fruits of love are gone. The worm, the canker and the grief are mine alone. The fire that on my bosom prays is lone as some volcanic isle. No torches kindled at its blaze, a funeral pile. The hope, the fear, the jealous care, the exalted portion of the pain and power of love I cannot share but wear the chain. How tragic, the man as gifted as Byron, aristocrat, wealthy, brilliant, could write that his days were in the yellow leaf, that the flowers and fruits of love were gone, that the worm, the canker and the grief were his alone. My friends, that's for you and me too, unless we get above the sun, unless we wake up to the fact that this world is only a hemisphere, unless we realise that we are a half hinge without God, In the twelfth chapter, Solomon rises above the sun. Let me read to you. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw nigh when you'll say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Now please note, Solomon is describing the ills of old age. When we no longer see as clearly, when troubles keep piling in upon us, one after another. He says, In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, that's the hands, they're the keepers of the house, and with old age they tremble. And the strong men are bent, we become sometimes a bit bow legged. He goes on to say, And the grinders cease because they're few. That's teeth. The teeth begin to fall out. and Those that look through the windows are dimmed. There's the poor eyesight. And the doors in the street are shut. The hearing passages of the ear. Deafness comes our way. And one rises up at the voice of a bird, sleeps very lightly. And all the daughters of song are brought low. That's the vocal cords. And they're afraid of that which is high. And terrors are in the way. And the almond tree blossoms. That's the white hair. Of old age. Because man goes to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped. Or the golden bowl is broken. Or the pitch is broken at the fountain. Or the wheel broken at the cistern. He's continuing the imagery. Of death. When the chain of nervous ganglia. Operates no more. The circulation of the blood stops. The pitch is broken at the fountain. And the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Then he reminds us of his text. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. But then he adds, the end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So Solomon tells us the only way to avoid the vanities of life is to give God his place, to remember him preferably from our youth. But at any time in the mercy of God he will accept us. It is interesting to note that this book of Ecclesiastes is followed by the Song of Solomon. The first book had begun with Vanity of Vanities but this book begins with Song of Songs. Instead of a dirge And gloom, we now have joy, delirious joy, the joy of love. Because Solomon is now picturing the overflowing heart of one who's found the Saviour, who intercedes above the sun in heaven itself for each one of us. It's so necessary to get above the sun, to realise that this world is incomplete in itself, I read once the little parable of a lark that was singing happily in the early morning and was suddenly rudely interrupted by a mole that peeped out of its earthly hole saying, what are you doing? I'm singing, said the lark. But why are you singing, said the mole. Oh, the blue sky, the sunshine, the rippling brooks. Life's wonderful. Earth is wonderful. But the mole responded, you're a fool. I know all about the earth, I live in it, I tunnel through it every day, there's nothing there, only dirt and worms. But the lark was above the earth, enshrined in a tree, it could see the heavens. For those that live in the earth, who are of the earth, earth may indeed seem to have but dirt and worms. But for those that get above the sun, my friends, where Christ is, where God is, they will learn to sing the song of songs. Let me refer you to a few verses in the second book. In chapter 2 and verse 16 we read, My beloved is mine, and I am his. In chapter 6 and verse 3, it's a little different. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And then in chapter 7 and verse 10, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. When we first come to Christ, my friends, we only want him for our own sake. It's been said that no one's really ready for heaven except the person who's ready to forego heaven if it would be for God's glory. But we don't begin the religious life that way because we're all selfish by nature. And as the song says, we rejoice that my beloved is mine. And only secondly do we admit that we are his. But with maturity in the Christian life and more and more fellowship with Jesus, we have the second experience. I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. My friends, today I want to ask you, which of these books represent your experience? Are you like the mole and like Solomon, grovelling in the earth for all it has to offer? My friends, apart from God, it has little to offer. Old age, sorrow, tragedy, pain, disappointment, gloom, vanity. Apart from God, all manner turns to worms. But if, if you and I can follow the counsel, of Solomon in his last chapter to rise above the sun to reverence God and in response to his great love to keep his commandments then we'll sing the song that follows the song of songs my beloved is mine and I am his I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine I am my beloved's and his desire is for me in the New Testament in the book of Colossians we read in the third chapter That Christ is all and in all. My friends, to some people Christ is nothing. To them the world is all they have. It's like putting a half dollar piece to the eye. It can blot out the sun. Those that don't know Christ have heaven blotted out by the world. But scripture says Christ is all and in all. So to some he's nothing. To other people he's something, but that's not enough, because unless he's Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So Christ could say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? My friends, when we see how much he loves us, we cannot help but love him. And when we've given him our hearts, there's nothing we won't give him. It'll be our desire to make every habit, every word, every thought, every deed, every ambition, every striving, redound to his glory. For Christ is all and in all. To many he is much, but that's not enough. He's to be all and in all. And why should it be so? Because, my friends, Christ gave his all for us. There in Gethsemane, he took the cup of the wrath of God, appointed for sinners. He took that first sip and began to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. From There he went to Calvary to drain the cup dry. There the heavens were clouded and the sun was shrouded. There the devil and all his hosts attacked him. Hell poured out its demons. The very sun was darkened by the arrows of hell. There he fought and cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He endured the terrors of the damned, the agony of the second death, as your representative and mine. He was forsaken of God that we might never be forsaken. He took our place that we might have his place. He took our debts that we might have his credits. He took our sins that we might have his righteousness. We were ruined by the first Adam, our representative. We had nothing to do with that. But we've been redeemed by the second Adam. And we had nothing to do with that. My friends, today look at the cross of Christ. And the Christ of the cross And sing, my beloved is mine, and I am his. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. And then all earthly vanity will give way to verity, and hollowness will give way to happiness. God grant it to each one of you.